Okay. If God is love, it can't support war, can it? Question mark. If you get into the whole discussion of the issue about war and capital punishment come to that, you'll need to be furnished with some kind of reply to this question. You'll get the same thing when you come to look at capital punishment. After all, God is love. Usually these people will also think that God is opposed to any kind of judgment too. So therefore, there cannot be any such thing as the lake of fire. God isn't like that. How can a God who's a God of love ever see his creatures excluded from his presence? Everyone is going to get there in the end. I confess that I actually thought that when I was first saved. The lady that was training me for baptism nearly took my head off when I said, she said, what do you think is going to happen in the end? I said, oh, I think we'll all get there in the end. Straight down the throat she was. She was right. So what does the Bible say? It's true that when in 1 John 4, 8 it says God is love. But have you noticed a few other scriptures? <laughs> Exodus 15, 1-3 and the Song of Moses. Moses wrote this to celebrate their wonderful deliverance by God from Egypt. And remember he sort of drowned the Egyptian army a little bit, didn't he, in three inches of water? I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea. Oh, God doesn't seem to be too fussy about the rider or the animal here. The Lord is my strength and song. He's become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war, or as it should be translated, the Lord is a warrior. He is a man who goes out to war. The Lord is his name. So there's one verse that says God is a God of war as well as a God of love. So if you're not happy with that, Try Psalm 144, a psalm of probably one of the greatest military men who ever lived, David. He says, Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. There's a number of warrior women amongst us here today. I wonder why he wants to raise up warrior women if he's not a man of war. David's saying it's God who trains him. What an amazing thing to say. God has taught me all the military skills I have, he's saying. A bit of a problem if you're a pacifist at this point. Psalm 18, 32 and 34, there's a similar reference. It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. God taught David how to make war. And this is also God, who's a God of absolute love. He taught him to make war. You find the same when you come to Jesus. He was meek and mild, but he was also a man of passion. Jesus was a baby, meek and mild. We're coming up to that, aren't we? But he was also a man with carpenter's shoulders and muscles. And never forget Jesus, the man. It's Jesus, the man, that's coming back. And he was angry, it says, doesn't it? And the Bible says, be angry and sin not. There's a difference between being angry and sinning in your anger. Jesus' anger was never sin. People often say to me, oh, but mine was righteous anger. What they're talking about is their own anger at something. And it, no, it wasn't, is the answer. First, you need the mind of Christ. And when you've got that, you can begin to understand and move in righteous anger. 
which was the only kind that Jesus ever exhibited and it has to do with the holiness of God I got mad in the week because I've been seeing a family who have been so bound up in a religious spirit that the cruelty that has come out from the poor father to the children there needs to be seen to be believed. his father kicked his mother to church on a Sunday morning they were Roman Catholics and I got so angry at religious spirits I was so mad I was going to chop their heads off and spit down their necks I was just so mad that I believe is righteous anger my anger is never directed at people it's directed at who's behind what's going on he hates me with a malevolent hatred and I'm returning the compliment. And he knows it. And that is not being vainglorious. You have to know the authority that you move in. You don't move beyond it. But you do need to know when you've got authority in a situation. And that made me mad. What has happened was that Apparently Graham Cook is teaching and breaking through um, about religious spirits over places. And I said to God, Lord, I want to know what he's teaching. I want to know what that is. So what's God do? He sends me a family with a religious spirit over it so as I can find out for myself and fight every inch of the way. You want it? Have some. So righteous anger was the only kind that Jesus ever exhibited and it has to do with God's holiness and maybe we'll look at the attributes of God sometime and love is but one of them he's also absolute righteousness justice and holiness one does not cancel out the other and neither is one bigger than the other his love does not weigh, outweigh his holiness and what I think is happening in the church right now is he's poured out his love on us and now he's saying now my holiness kids just, just come into separation, be separated unto me because I'm a holy God and I don't like mixture. He hates mixture. Those of you who know the Old Testament will know that he didn't allow the priests to mix linen and wool in their garments when they were ministering to him. There had to be linen. Why? Because sweat is the result of the fall and he didn't want their sweaty fingerprints on everything when they were ministering to him. That's caused a dear friend of mine to completely freak when I said sweat came in after the fall. That does not compute with my uh, philosophy and theology. And, and what it is, it's a domino effect. If I've got that wrong, ding, 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 what else have I got wrong? You see, and fear has come right in. So at the moment they won't hear uh, because that is just a blotted stuff out. Selective hearing. There is one passage which describes Jesus clearing the temple ground. John 2.13. Let's see how meek and mild he really was. There's this carpenter. Just visualise it now. They've got the tables out. They're selling their wares. Got it all laid out. He comes in, carpenter, big man, broad shoulders. And the Jewish Passover was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple... Those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. 
The point here is that they were charging exorbitant prices for the things that they were selling. Three times or so the normal price. These ordinary people were being ripped off. And this is the cause of his righteous indignation. They were making money out of selling animals for sacrifice to a huge degree and the people were at their mercy. So what does he do? When he'd made a whip of cords, this is deliberate, and it's sitting out there doing this, isn't it? He drove them out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out their changers' money and overturned their tables and he said to them who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. He wasn't being super spiritual. He was saying, you are ripping off the ordinary people by the prices you are charging. I almost feel I want to say, are you in a church body where they're ripping you off because they're extracting a tithe or money from you? because we taught on tithing, didn't we, a few weeks ago. Are you in a place where they are ripping you off? Just a question. This is the same Jesus who says that unbelievers will be cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The same Jesus who is love embodied in one person, absolute pure love, and yet he speaks of this judgment. He's the same man, the God-man, who appears in Revelation 19.11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, excuse me, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. I probably need to say that I said that about money in church because I felt the Holy Spirit's pressure upon me to say it. Our giving is, come, is to come out of our heart. It's to come because God's saying to you, give in that situation. It's not to come by manipulation or pressure or making you feel guilty, making you feel uncomfortable and squirm. It must not be like that. I think it's part of the new thing that God is doing in the church. He's bringing us, I believe what he's bringing us into, I rarely say I believe because I usually speak straight from the word of God. He is bringing into the church what should have been there all the time is the relational aspect. When we get together here, we're just family. Our lives are linked together. I'm concerned about every person I see because God's concerned about them. And it's basic, fundamental, interlinking, interlocking lives one with another and being really care caring. Not, you know, don't lick an handshake, you know, morning, on to the next one. And you really don't know the person's name after time. There is a, a whole paradigm shift going on. As I say, you can't read about it, you can't. There's no CDs on it, we're just moving into something new. I got so mad this morning, I banged that drum there and I made me bruise my thumb again. When a king rode into a city or approached a city on a donkey, it was a sign of peace. When he came on a horse, it meant warfare, always. That's why lookouts on the wall would always look for a cloud of dust. 
If there was a cloud of dust, it meant war was about to be declared. Someone's making speed towards you. Donkeys don't move that fast. So what do we see? The first time Jesus came, he rode in on a donkey, didn't he? The next time, second advent, he comes on a horse. And war is in all his doings. And we'll see more about those on horses when we come to look at the book of Revelation next year. Uh, but notice that it is in righteousness that he judges and makes war. This is a holy war. All wars declared by God are absolutely righteous. So how do we reconcile these two views of the character of Jesus and God? It's quite simple when you know the character of God. He's a God of love, but he's equally a God of absolute righteousness and absolute justice and that means when sin is about his holiness is offended and in righteousness he must judge the sin his love is shown by the death of Jesus on the cross Jesus has provided the way out of the eternal damnation that is coming but if men reject that there remains nothing for it but the wrath of God to come on their heads so in righteousness he makes this war and Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And Hebrews 3.11 says, So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest, talking about Israel now. Their sin, he said, has come before me and I have to judge that sin. For us in Colossians 3, 6, talking about the judgment on the end on unbelievers, for which things the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience. There is this other side of God's character, his wrath and his righteous indignation. So there you have the balance between the love of God and his righteous indignation. So was Jesus a pacifist? Jesus did give certain teaching which a pacifist may say supports their thinking. Matthew 5, 9 Blessed are the peacemakers, he says. Therefore, anyone who supports a peace movement must be blessed. But the Beatitudes deal with inner holiness. They do not deal with the way to run a nation. Matthew 5, 38-41 I say to you, resist not evil. Matthew 26, 52, for all that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Bye. They're getting a few scriptures now to back up their view about Jesus being a pacifist. Against those, Matthew 10, 34, think not that I've come to bring peace on earth, but a sword. What he's doing here is recognising the reality of the fall. He's saying that my message is one that will divide families. Luke 22:36. But he that has no sword, let him sell his garments and buy one. So was he a pacifist or not? Is the Bible contradicting itself? Matthew 5:9, blessed are the peacemakers, is saying that this is the ministry of the blessed man is the man who creates peace. We are all meant to be peacemakers, not troublemakers. If it's peace at any price, it's being a peacemonger, someone who is always selling peace. We must have peace no matter what the cost. You bring that right down um, to your own level, to your own life, and if you want peace at any cost, you're a people pleaser. That's what you do. Because it doesn't matter what they do, I'm not going to confront it, I'm going to be a people pleaser because I don't want, it's my rejection is showing. 
There's a world of difference between a peacemaker into which we're all called and being a peacemonger, which is a seller, dealer or promoter. Jesus is not saying blessed are the peacemongers. Sometimes those selling pieces are said are very violent and there are all sorts of riots. You'd think that scrapping your weapons would produce peace, wouldn't you? Get rid of your weapons, that's going to be better. But what actually happens if you do that, as it did with the Falklands War, another country, in this case Argentina, looks at that and thinks easy meat. Go in there, possess it. Britain's not going to put up a fight for the Falkland Islands. Disarmament does not solve the problem. Other countries do not actually follow your good example. In truth, it makes you more vulnerable to attack. They think you're stupid. So the action of someone who claims to be a peacemaker may not lead to peace. It might lead to the very war they're trying to avoid. Taking it right back to basics. One way of getting peace in the home, let the children do just what they like. Let them decide. Put no restrictions on them. Then they won't kick up a fuss. That's the way of peace, isn't it? Not for very long. You'll have a child-ruled household in no time. You will soon find you have bred monsters and there will be no peace for you at all. There will only be universal peace when Jesus makes war against the devil in the last battle of time, the Gog and Magog battle, whom the Lord will consume, I love it, with the breath of his mouth, mouth, not his mouth, and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Nice mouth. Oh yeah, I read something yesterday. It made me absolutely hoot. I mean, as someone said once, if a man doesn't believe in God, he'll believe in anything. And I was reading Alexander Hislop's The Two Babylons, and there was a bit in there about what they used to make, um, consider was God. And in this particular thing, they made mice. Mice were the, you know, be all and give it they don't believe in God, they believe in anything. Get some little gems out of there next time. The inner man of the spirit and the individual's response. So here we come to the Beatitudes. That last uh, scripture I gave you, that the, the Lord will destroy with the breath of his mouth, not his mouth, and destroy with the brightness of his coming, is 2 Thessalonians 2.8 just in case you're taking notes. So Matthew 5, 38 and 39, you've heard it said, and I can I are tooth for tooth, but I say to you, don't resist an evil person, but whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him your left cheek also. This verse, taken as it stands, looks as though you're literally not to resist any evil whatsoever. If someone socks you one, you just stand there uh, and let them do it. Don't hit back. But is that actually what Jesus is saying? Haven't we already seen that the government and the police force and the armies are there by God's design to keep us safe from criminals and from the violence? So there must be something more here. We need to see to whom the Beatitudes were written and why. And they're not written to nations, the world or unbelievers. They're written to us as individuals, to believers and spoken to the Pharisees and Jesus' followers. What Jesus is talking about in these writings is the inner attitude of heart. I may be sitting down, but inside I'm standing up. Heard that one, haven't you? The heart, and specifically the desire for vengeance. What Jesus is saying here is that if someone does hit you around the face, even if you don't retaliate, 
Make sure there's no vengeance in your heart. He's not literally saying turn the other cheek. He's saying get your heart right and free from vengeance. It's all about the inner man of the spirit. When I was first a Christian, I had a little kitten and he jumped up on my lap one day and dug his claws into my hand and I had my hand up to hit him. And I, I said, Lord, if I hit him, you know, I mean, I'd just decimate him. And it was, I realised what was in me. I was being hurt and I wanted to wallop this little kitten. It was then that I realised what was inside me in terms of retaliation. I said, you've got to deal with that, Lord. And Bob Mumford tells a story. It's so funny in The King and You. We, some of us are going to be having a look at that in uh, January. Of when he was not long out of the Navy. And he was pastor in a small church. And he had a problem with the organist, or rather she had a problem with him. She was out with him. And one day he met her, and she berated him with heated words. And he was suddenly standing there, feeling that he's handling this situation so beautifully. And uh, suddenly she spat at him. <laughs> and before he knew it, he sort of <laughs> his fist level with his eye. His arm was back ready to punch her. He didn't. And he said, he could just imagine the newspaper um, headline, past the floor's organist. <laughs> but he went home and prostrated himself before God, horrified like I was about the kitten, at his own reaction and imagining that newspaper headline. So God will put people around us to reveal the inherent desire in our hearts to retaliate when we're maligned or hurt. But Jesus says, I'll show you a more excellent way. And there are other passages, as we've seen, that speak of national issues. This one is speaking to individuals, and there's an old saying, the text out of context is a pretext. And taking verses like these to substantiate a certain position is completely wrong. We need to know how to rightly divide the Word of God. I remember right early on, someone was teaching one evening in a house group and uh, he was talking about, he wanted to substantiate the view that the church would go through the tribulation. So he read so far down a paragraph. And even then God had showed me about Revelation and the church's position and where we will actually be. And I said, excuse me, you need to read the next verse. He was absolutely furious. I said, no, 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 no. You, 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 because, you know, it's not coming on us. It's coming on, it's coming on the world. He wouldn't read this. Ganashing of teeth because he was wanting to support his, what he believed. We shouldn't come at the scriptures like that, you know, to, to uh, substantiate what we believe. We must come and have a look and see what they say and let them read us uh, so that we get what God's saying. So Matthew 5, 38 and 39 does not support the pacifist view. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. What he's actually saying here in verses 38 and 39, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, is that the punishment must fit the crime. And this is true justice, not rough justice. He was speaking to the Pharisees who constantly took the law into their own hands and misquoted the law as though... Uh, taking vengeance was right. He was saying, judge righteously, don't punish people unjustly, get it right. He was reminding them of the law which they knew very well. 
He was repeating what he said in Leviticus 19, 17 and 18. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thy heart. Love your neighbour as yourself. And in Proverbs 20, 22, Don't say I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will save you. And in Deuteronomy 19, 21, the maximum penalty you can impose if you punch someone and they lose an eye is the loss of an eye yourself, hence a life for a life. Logical progression. We'll see that when we examine capital punishment. He's talking about justice without vengeance. One of the things I learned early on when I came into um, the whole ministry that I'm in now is always speak from a place of peace. If you can't speak from a place of peace, what is going to come out is your fallen nature sooner or later. So if I can't speak from a place of peace, I won't speak at all. Just one of the little lessons that I've learned along the way. So Jesus was talking about justice without vengeance. What Jesus is saying is when the law is put into action, it should not be put into action according to man's desire for vengeance. It must be put into action because God's law has been broken. You must feel no animosity at all towards those who have damaged you. We usually want justice because we want vengeance, our pound of flesh, don't we? I mean, does it cause you to examine your own heart? It does me. We want our pound of flesh. What happens then if someone you are associated with actually breaks the law? What should you do? How do you get the balance right between no personal vengeance and the correct use of the law? In Romans 11, 17 to 21, Paul covers this, saying, don't act under vengeance. And in chapter 13... As we've seen, 1 to 5, you have the correct use of the law. So Romans 12, 7, 17 to 13, 5, that's overlapping the chapter. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. You must not have anything to do with vengeance in your own heart. Don't hit him back if he hits you. If it's as possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it is mine to revenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heat coals of fire in his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And in chapter 13 he goes on to speak of the correct use of the law. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. We heard it before, didn't we? The authorities that exist are appointed by God. And just a note about this thing about in so doing you will pour coals of fire on his head. Uh, many of you probably know this. This is not God's vengeance on the person. In ancient times, your fire was what you cooked with, kept you warm, and it was very precious. So you guarded the centre, the nub of your fire, because if you didn't have it going, you, you couldn't start it again. If your fire went out, you were in big trouble. So you would take your pan on your head and go to your neighbour and ask for half of their live coals to start your fire all over again. 
That meant your fire could go out if you gave them half of what you've got. So Jesus is saying, give them what is most important to you. Don't hold back anything. They're saying, they've just upset you. Give them what they're asking for. That hits right at the centre of it. It's an ouch factor for me, that one. Just what he was saying in Matthew 5, 40-42. If anyone wants to sue you to take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. And he was speaking to people who were under Roman rule, because they were in Roman occupation, and the soldiers would often tell the Jews uh, to carry their packs a mile, and that was all they had to do. And they were heavy. So Jesus is saying, go twice the distance. Go twice the distance. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow, do not turn away. In fact, if you give half your own hot coals away, as I said, your brazier might go out, so it's risky living. But this is what God is calling the church into. Not holding on for ourselves what is best for us, but having open hands and giving. In the natural, you only did this to those who you really loved. You'd only give away your coals if you really loved them. You certainly didn't think about doing it to those who actually hurt you, so that you blessed them. But what it's saying is, there's no personal animosity here. You've done this to me, so it's all about no personal animosity, no vengeance, and it shows us where our hearts need dealing with, doesn't it? As Christians, we do bear grudges, don't we, all the time? We get offended, don't we? It's absolutely wrong. And Joyce Mayer, again, has got a super saying, are you holding a grudge or is a grudge holding you? <coughs> That'll be there. It's all in the title, isn't it? Of course the grudge is holding us. Really, when you suffer some kind of wrong, you should not take any account of it because the Lord says, if you don't avenge yourself, I will repay because vengeance is mine. If we seek to take vengeance ourselves, God cannot move on our behalf. I've had it happen time and time and time again to me because it's been part of my training kill the old man off a bit I will defend you if you don't defend yourself Bill. you just stand back and I'll do it in my way and in my time and when I do it'll give you no um, happiness or joy at all because what I would want at that time would be a bit of vindication so he would stop me doing that and by the time that the thing was sorted and whatever was done was done by God. I had no animosity in my heart at all. This is why Stephen said, didn't he, as they were stoning him, don't lay this sin to their charge. Don't lay it to their charge. If anyone wrongs me, I try to have that come out of my mouth first. Don't lay this sin to their charge. But they don't know what they're doing. It's not, I'm not holier than thou, that is something God is working in me and that is and what I want him to work in me. Deal with me ruthlessly and correct me severely is my prayer constantly, like Rick Joyner. Paul says, don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good, Romans 12:21. Trouble with our land is there's not enough goodness about. And he goes straight on to talking about the police, talking about the law system. And the point he's making here is that you must not take the law into your own hands. If someone has broken the law, the police will deal with it, not you. 
There must be no personal animosity, no matter what is happening or what has happened. Romans 13 says that there are authorities instituted by God to deal with this situation and you must hand it over to them to deal with, otherwise you yourself are acting in anarchy and rebellion. So did Jesus practice what he preached? In John 18, 19, the high priest actually hits him on the cheek, but we don't see him literally turning the other cheek. It's all about the inner attitude of the heart. Jesus felt no vengeance. He simply asked, would you tell me why you hit me? For what crime do you hit me? What about Paul? And we'll finish with this and break for lunch. In Acts 23.10, we see Paul being removed because of the crowd. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are fighting amongst themselves and Paul is in danger, so the commander removes him to the local lockup. While he's there, the dissenters, 40 of them, bind themselves under an oath not to eat or drink until they've killed him. So does Paul just say, oh well, let them have their way, peace, peace, you know, I can't do anything. If you know the story, his nephew comes in and tells Paul about the plot. So Paul sees to it that the plot is reported to the captain. He's not passive about this. The result is he's taken out under heavy guard at night and escapes the plots of the wicked. Paul is calling on the divine institution, number four of government, to protect the rights of individuals. He knew his stuff. He calls upon God's rightfully authorised people to give him the protection he needs. So what about you? Here, the law has not been broken. Someone has done something wrong to you, but they haven't broken the law. What then? You could call for the elders. But the highest way of all is to commit it to the Lord and feel no vengeance in your heart. That's the place to come to, and that's the place we're working towards. Whenever we feel offended, affronted, or the need for revenge or retaliation, we're looking at that old eros serpent with which those you who attend on a Wednesday are familiar. The self-referential thing that was to be petted, handled gently, soft-talked all the time, and incidentally have its pound of flesh. It feels hard done by. <clears throat> it's not the stuff that the kingdom is made of. What happens when someone does something to you and the law safeguards you? For instance, gossip. I don't know if there still is a law of slander. There used to be. I shouldn't think it's very much alive in this day and age. It's not doing too much about uh... But 50 years ago, you could actually sue someone for defamation of character in much the same way as you could sue a man who let you down and didn't marry you when he promised to. It was called breach of promise. None of you are old enough to understand that. Seriously, even if you could, if it's a brother or a sister who's slandering and gossiping about you, you certainly don't take them to court. It's only your personal vengeance. You want to get your own back. 1 Corinthians 6.6 6 has something to say about this. But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be defrauded? No, you yourselves do wrong and you do these things to your brothers. These Corinthians were still worldlings. They still sought to settle things the way the world did. And if you read the two uh, epistles to the Corinthians, you can get a good picture of newly born Christians. They were up to everything because they didn't yet have a grip on the sanctification process, or rather it hadn't got a good grip on them. Uh, so the Beatitudes deal 
with an individual's inner holiness. They do not deal with the way to run a nation or with national government. Uh, this afternoon we'll have a look at uh, what happens when you take the law into your own hands and Jesus' response. Thank you for listening. So just to finish this one off, a biblical example of taking the law into your own hands and Jesus' response. In Matthew 26, 51, we see Peter, bless him, taking the law into his own hands and striking off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Do you remember this? This is when they came to arrest Jesus. And we know it's Peter because John's Gospel tells us uh, the same account in John 18:10. This was actually a totally illegal action on Peter's part. The people coming to arrest Jesus were there on official business. They were the proper people to arrest the possible suspect. Even if they weren't, it wasn't Peter's place to attack and kill them. It would have still been the place of the correct authorities. So Jesus' words to Peter are not a substantiation of So Jesus' words to Peter are not a substantiation for disarmament because he said, put away your sword, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Jesus was actually rebuking his action because it was illegal. Peter had taken the law into his own hands and was using the sword to get his own way. Jesus was saying, if you use violence to get your own way, you'll perish violently. He was not speaking against soldiers and armaments. He was talking about the illegal use of arms. So if anyone tries that one on you, you know the answer now. The Word of God tells us what we need for our lives. And for completeness sake, John 18, 36, Jesus answering Pilate said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. What Pilate was interested in here was whether Jesus was a rival, trying to set up an alternative society against Caesar. So Jesus tells him plainly, I know, I'm not doing that. My kingdom is one about which you have no knowledge. His is a spiritual kingdom which is not fought over physically. The inference too is that if this was a physical kingdom, then his people would fight for it. And when we look at the wise men next month, we'll see that Herod was nervous for the same reason when the wise men came into Jerusalem. When he heard about the birth of Jesus, he thought there was another king in the offing. Uh, in fact, this Herod was a usurper to the throne anyway, and he had reason to be nervous. But we'll see more of that in December. So part three is warfare and, and international evil. And we need to go to the Old Testament, and specifically to the book of Deuteronomy, where we see the rules of warfare. This is what they had to apply when they went into battle. Deuteronomy 20, 1-4, reading from the message. And then Moses is speaking. When you go out to war, not if, against your enemy and see horses and chariots and soldiers far outnumbering you, do not recoil in fear of them. God, your God, who brought you up out of Egypt, is with you. When the battle is about to begin, let the priest come forward and speak to the troops. He will say, Attention, Israel. In a few minutes you're going to do battle with your enemies. Don't waver in resolve. Don't fear, don't hesitate, don't panic. 
God, your God, is right there with you, fighting with you against your enemies, fighting to win. God is right there, right with them, ensuring their victory. You can count the number of times in the Old Testament where it says, and the Lord wrought a great victory that day. So who's doing the fighting? God is the Lord of Sabaoth, and that means the warrior king. It's the Lord of hosts, is the Lord of Sabaoth. The warrior king fighting for and with Israel against their enemies. But what went wrong that brought God's judgment against Israel instead of his protection? What did they do that caused his hand of protection to be lifted from them as a nation beloved of God? They committed spiritual adultery. They neither listened nor obeyed the prophets. He sent them. They broke covenant despite all his warnings. And those of you who know Roger Price's teaching will know that they, there were five cycles of discipline. And as his his discipline got heavier and heavier, and Leviticus 26-23 is the fourth of the five cycles of discipline which the Lord warned Israel about if they didn't back their ideas up. And as I say, each cycle brought increasingly severe judgment on them. Again, we haven't looked at these yet, but they'll come up when we study the book of Revelation next year because the Lord has told me that I need to start with the relationship with Israel. That's going to be where we're going to start to look at Revelation. Just look at who's doing what to whom here. Again, I'm reading from the message in Leviticus 26-23. And if this doesn't work, and you refuse my discipline, and continue your defiance, then it will be my turn to defy you. Yes, I will punish you for your sins seven times over. I'll let war loose on you, avenging your breaking of the covenant. When you huddle in your cities for protection, I'll send a deadly epidemic on you and you'll be helpless before your enemies. When I cut off your bread supply, ten women will bake bread in one oven and ration it out. You'll eat, but barely. No one will get enough. Here, God is using war against Israel because of their continuing defiance against him. And you can't make Jesus a pacifist with passages like that in there. In verse 32, he says, I'll bring the land into desolation. God is going to do it. He will bring enemies into their land to deal with them. This is God talking, I will scatter you. That's the fifth cycle of discipline which the Jewish nation is still in. Scattered amongst the nations. You will see as we go on in studying the word that God actually raises up nations to discipline and judge other nations. This is particularly apparent in his dealings with Israel. He brought the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians against his people but then decreed desolation to those nations. In Daniel 2.21 it says, It is God who raises up kings and who puts down kings. And today God is still in the business of raising up nations and putting down other nations. He is the great territorial spirit. It's all his and he distributes it as he thinks fit. In Jeremiah 50 verse 9 we see God dealing with the Babylonians and I'm quoting now from the New King James. I will raise a cause to come up against Babylon an assembly of great nations from the north and they shall array themselves against her. From there she shall be captured and none shall return. He raised up the Persians and the Medes and together they came down and ransacked Babylon. You may look at this and say the Medes and the Persians didn't it, did it, but it wasn't. 
God did it. Bible tells us. What happened here is that Babylon finally became so wicked that God had to judge them. Always wickedness and evil will be judged in God's time and he did it through the Persians and the Medes. You only have to look at the universal flood, Sodom and Gomorrah and in the end, Antichrist. Judgment will come on the nations as surely as night follows day. What we see here is that warfare deals with international evil and it is God who finally deals with them. So we read this phrase over and over again, God gave them up into the hands of whoever you happen to be reading at the time. Beloved, we are so secure in this great God of ours, it should fill us with such joy when we truly know his sovereignty over all things and his lordship in our lives. Our security is impenetrable and our joy must be full. He's the Lord of Sabaoth, the warrior king. He will bring all things about according to his sovereign will. Never doubt it. Kate was saying to me last night on one of Graham Cook's latest ones, he does a spiritual Cluedo, doesn't he, Kate? Uh, Graham, in the throne room, with rejoicing. <laughs> so it's Beryl, in the throne room, with joy. That's who did it. <laughs> Beloved, we are so secure. Just one more scripture, Jeremiah 21, 7-9, and again I'm reading now from the New International Version. You'll gather by now that I have a look at the versions and choose which ones I want. After that, declares the Lord, I will hand over Zedekiah, king of Judah, his officials and the people in the city, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and to their enemies who seek their lives. He will put them to the sword, he will show them no mercy, pity or compassion. Furthermore, tell the people, this is what the Lord says, See, I'm setting before you the way of life and the way of death. Whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, but whoever goes out and surrenders to the Babylonians will escape with his life. You'll notice when you're reading the book of Jeremiah that God said on another occasion, If you stay here, you'll be all right, but if you flee, you'll be destroyed. Again, they took no notice, and they were destroyed. God always, always warns and warns and warns about what he will do if we don't listen and obey. He couldn't do any more. He's good. What you're observing is the rebellious nature of fallen mankind determined to do it their own way with disastrous results. Because of his holiness and absolute justice, God must bring judgment on persistent rebellion. He must deal with sin on a national scale. So in the chapter we're studying, it goes on in verse 10, I have determined to do this city harm and not good. It will be given over into the hands of the king of Babylon and he will destroy it with fire. Just to look at this whole cycle of God's justice and judgment against the nations when sin is full grown and prophecy generally, we need to go back to Genesis 15 and the verses 13 to 15 where God is speaking to Abraham Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, Egypt, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. In the fourth generation your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. 
The principle here, do you remember I spoke about principles, God's a God of principles, is that when the cup of iniquity, as he calls it, is full and it spills over, God judges. So people will say to me, why doesn't God judge now? And my answer to that is, it's usually unbelievers. Why doesn't God judge all this bad stuff now? Unbelievers say to me, and I say, you ready me? Because <coughs> if he's going to judge, he's going to judge you. You ready for that? <coughs> that usually stops them. Right. I'm not being unkind. I mean, that's the fact isn't it? So in the meantime, he waits. Here is his patience and long-suffering with humankind. He only judges when a country has gone so far, he just has to bring judgment on them. And the day may come when he looks at Britain and says, your iniquity is full, I must judge. The Amorites referred to in Genesis occupied the land of Canaan and in the book of Joshua you see how God's righteous judgment was poured upon this country. And notice that it was the Lord Jesus himself who was commander of the armed forces. I always love this bit. Joshua 5, 13-15 And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and behold a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Uh, for adversaries? So he said, No. <laughs> I don't come to take sides. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot. For the place where you stand is holy. That's a Christophany, or a Theophany, whatever you like to call it. It's an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. So the Lord is a man of war. From what we've seen, we must come to the conclusion that Jesus was definitely not a pacifist. That he expects us to be subject as individuals to the law of the land. And as a nation to defend our country from attackers and that his will be the final judgment of the nations. Okay. I'll just go back over that in case you didn't get it. From what we've seen, we must come to the conclusion that Jesus definitely was not a pacifist, that he expects us to be subject as individuals to the law of the land, and as a nation to defend our country from attackers and that his will be the final judgment of the nations. From Thessalonians and Revelation, we see that at his second coming, he alone is going to judge and make war. His is the robe dipped in blood. Revelation 19, 11 to 21. And just to finish off with a scripture, Revelation 11, uh, 19, 11 to 21. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fire linen and white and clean followed him on white horses now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron 
He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We will see more of this glorious King of ours in our study in Revelation next year. May God bless his word to your hearts and thank you for listening. So this part is called Honour and Respect. And it's just very short, but it might speak to some of you and you might want to do business with God if it does. Because the Bible is actually full of instructions regarding honour. Something of which we hear very little in these days. And the direction from which I'm coming today is the first commandment with promise. Honour your father and mother as the Lord commanded you that your days may be prolonged and that it may go well with you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. That's Deuteronomy 5.16, repeated again in Ephesians 6.2. And in Ephesians 6.2 it's called the first commandment with blessing. A biblical definition of honour is the recognition of a person's worth or value and the attitude that is appropriate to that recognition. So we see that honour has to do with a person's value or worth and that raises the question of the system that we use for determining that value or worth. Men and women, regardless of their character or past performance, are made in God's image, which means they have an intrinsic, basic, essential, built-in value. They have this value because God imputed it to them. He gave it to them. So just as God has unilaterally and unconditionally given his love, so he has unilaterally and unconditionally given us our eternal worth. And not even the fall, with all of its effects, has damaged this built-in value. The cross of Jesus says that we are still, in God's view, worth redeeming and the price has been paid. So how you think of yourself should rather be measured by what he says about you rather than what you think about yourself. Because he says, beloved, you are of inestimable wealth. Because the price that was paid was out of this world. What a person says or does may be totally unacceptable in our eyes or in God's eyes. But the person themselves is always totally acceptable because of their essential intrinsic value. Even though God knows what some of our lifestyles have been like before conversion, he totally accepts and honours us as a person. He doesn't throw the dirty baby out, he washes it and throws away the bathwater. We must always make a clear distinction in our minds between what a person does and what he or she is. We saw this when we studied homosexuality. Put briefly, God loves the sinner, he doesn't love the lifestyle. So what relevance has that got for us this afternoon? Well the relevance it has is that there may be some of you who have unforgiveness in your hearts because of your upbringing. Your parents were less than helpful, less than able to actually parent you. You may have had an extremely abusive childhood. Be that as it may, God says, honour to whom honour is due, that it may go well with you. 
You may have had a hard time with employers or school teachers at school and you may be still harbouring a grudge against them. As I said before, are you holding a grudge or is a grudge holding you? Maybe a church leader has hurt you. And the Bible actually has a, a lot to say about honour generally. We're commanded to honour God, that's John 5.23. Our parents, Exodus 20.12 and Mark 10.19. The elders, 1 Timothy 5, 17. Our employers, 1 Timothy 6, 1. The queen or king, 1 Peter 2, 17. Wives are to honour their husbands, Ephesians 5, 33. Husbands are to honour their wives, 1 Peter 3, 7. And the institution of marriage is to be held in honour by all, Hebrews 13, 4. Honour is to be extended to widows, 1 Timothy 5.3, the elderly, Leviticus 19.32. If you're near my age, you will remember having to rise in the presence of someone older than you when they came into the room. I bet there's not many in this room can remember having to do that. When we were at school, when the teacher came in, we had to stand. If we were on a bus and there was a grown-up standing, you had to give your seat up. That was the way we brought her. Honour. And it's biblical. Never knew that. That was when we were still operating under Christian values in this country. So I shall expect you all to stand up when I come in. <laughs> the disadvantage or less successful, 1 Corinthians 12.23, and in 1 Peter 2.17 we honour all men. So what we have in the Bible is an entire society built on mutual honour and respect. When we're honouring our parents, we're honouring the role that they filled in our lives. We are not honouring what they did to us. Our fathers give us life. In the Old Testament King James words, he begot us. Our mother carried us in the womb and nurtured us in our early existence. For the value of these contributions alone, our parents are to be honoured, whether they were good parents, mediocre parents, or bad parents, because of the benefit to us. That it may go well with you. Like everything else, if you hold on to it, you're the one that suffers. I'm ministering to someone recently, uh, and uh, riddled with arthritis, so say. Actually, it wasn't arthritis at all. It was many, many spirits that were spirits of bitterness and unforgiveness. And when I first gave the person the book on unforgiveness, they couldn't even read it. They couldn't understand it because the spirits of unforgiveness would not allow them. So we did a bit of deliverance and sweeping of the chimney and then suddenly we were able to see what the book was saying. Came to see me at the weekend and one remaining spirit lurking about in the ankle um, so we asked the Lord about what it was and I said I found myself saying um, when did you first have this problem with pains in your joints when I was 17 what happened when you were 17 I went to work and God's so gracious ask him what anyone said to him before he went to work did anyone say anything to you before he went, yeah, my dad? 
they're going to be like this, they'll betray you, they'll do this, they'll do that, they'll do the next thing. That's where the spirit of bitterness came in. It was whispered into the person's ear. And in breaking the power of what went into his ears, the thing that was in his foot came out. Bitterness. Seeded there by words that went into the ears. Very powerful. What has been spoken over you is very powerful. Needs breaking. What also had happened was that the person had developed selective hearing. Because of what Father had said, tuned out certain things so that in actual fact could only hear certain sounds. So I'm fully expecting that all sound now will return to that person because it had really been selective. And apparently it was said to the person at work, you know, because you're very difficult to work as a team player because of your paranoia. That's what Dad's legacy to him was, whispering it in his ear. Not even whispering it, shouting it in his ear. Because he got what he thought he would get. Betrayal. Uh, people were objectionable to him. They had a hard time. Most of all, he was betrayed. Because that's what he expected. Very, very powerful. Again, I've gone off myself there a bit. So when we honour our parents, we honour the fatherhood of God. When we dishonour our parents, we dishonour what stands behind them, the fatherhood of God. And so today we're actually reaping the results of generations of parents who have not honoured their parents, nor taught the children to do so. And the result is that the younger generation place no value at all on the wisdom of old age, but rather see it as an encumbrance. Speaking malevolently against our parents can set in motion the deadly law of sowing and reaping. In Old Testament times, cursing your parents was a capital offence. Have a look at Exodus 21.17. Sometimes we are so concerned with the fact that we've been sinned against that we forget that our reactions to this are in fact in themselves sinful. That's very difficult to bring a person to the place of sin, that they're actually sinful in their responses to what has been done to them. So this afternoon we will be taking responsibility, won't we, for our bad behaviour and reactions. Growing up to see that we are surrounded by the fall and its consequences, forgiving as an act of our will and releasing those whom we've held in bondage and placing honour where it's due whether we think it should be there or not. So if as a result of this short teaching on the necessity to pay honour and respect your parents for their value in God's eyes, if you're feeling that you need to ask his forgiveness for dishonouring them or not respecting them or even evil speaking against them, uh, you either need to do business with God where you're sitting or you need to come up and have prayer. So God bless you. Thank you for listening. And... Uh, cup of tea probably when you're ready if nobody's got any business to do but otherwise we'll just let you do a bit of business <laughs>